0: Hi, I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the College Dale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're gonna to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in scripture, to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. We are blessed today. Are you blessed today? Raise your hand if you're blessed. Get get the blood flowing just a little bit more. Yeah. I have another question for you. Is there anybody here who would say, yep, count me in on this? I have a silent request, a prayer request that I would raise my hand to. I've got a silent prayer request. Go ahead and raise your hand. Thank you for that. We see you, but God sees you. More importantly, we are in our re-series midway through. Today we take a little shift. Ezra on through Esther. A little bit of Haggai, and today we shift into the book of Nehemiah. And as we do so, I just want to make clear, some of you, I see you pulling out your journals. We have our deacons right here. It's possible you arrived here today without one of these journals, and we would love to give you one. We've got plenty of them. If you've already gotten one and you left it at home, don't worry about it. Raise your hand. If you're a child or if you're an older person, if you are a guest and you know I'm only ever going to be here once, perfect, perfect you should grab one of these. Inside you'll find nothing other than whatever you decide is important. So uh, feel free to take one of these. I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts, things to add in there here momentarily as we today in our re-series get into this subject. We're diving into this topic request or re So, Hang on here, as we get started, turn to Luke chapter 11, if you don 't mind. turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. As you do that, a couple of things as you, those of you that have been here you 've gotten used to i 'm going to give you some things to write down in this journal. The uh, first thing i 'd like to make sure you know about though, is that we 've got a couple of things that are happening in the next couple of weeks. Uh, thank you by the way, praise team for leading us in uh, at least a verse in Spanish. This next weekend is our Latin Club celebration and we, the family of our students, are anxious to help celebrate. So for our Latin Club celebration, Sabbath, this next Sabbath, we have what to many of us will feel like a guest speaker, Pastor Gamaliel Feliciano, who Pastor Gamma is not actually from somewhere else, he's a part of this community. He's the pastor of our university church, our Latin church, Sukasa, And so he will be here to help break open God's Word with us as we celebrate our Latin students together in worship. And then the week following, I want you to know, if you, by the time we're done today, you may say, uh, you know what, I want to go back and read again the passage of Scripture we really dove into, and that's going to be Nehemiah chapter 1. You can mark that down. But if you're wanting to do a little reading ahead, then I highly recommend take a look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, for the 16th. Okay? Some of you know that I am likely to, and indeed will, give you a couple of journal questions. These might be something that pop up in a moment when you review what we talked about today. Maybe you have a family worship style that every once in a while you like to have journal questions, you like to have discussion questions. These would work perfectly for that. Here are two questions for you to consider. One, a pet peeve of mine is, I don't know why uh, that it feels so good to tell you what feels bad, but talking about our pet peeves is somehow cathartic. We might even need to pay somebody for the therapy we're going through. I don't know. But you're welcome to write that one down. And then the second of our journal questions, something or someone I feel moved to pray for is. Something, someone I feel moved to pray for is. Bonus round is if you can think of something that you've had this impression for more than just one day. Someone or something I have felt moved to pray for more than once is. And then for our youngest in the room possibly, our five words today, three words, three words today, Uh, and uh, if you don't know the rules to this little game, you're going to write down these words, and then you just mark off, hash mark, how many times they get said, you'll understand why I'm saying it's three words instead of five words, because already we've got two that I'm counting as one. So that's request or quest. Either one of those. If you don't want to write it down so long, you can just put the letter Q. You know what we're talking about. Quest. And then the next one, Nehemiah. And our third word is a series of possibilities. Uh, Break, broke, broken. I think a couple of times in the first service I'd used the word breakage. Uh, Anything involving that word root, you understand what we're talking about. You're welcome to hit the hash mark next to that. And by now, you have found your way to Luke chapter 11, where we read Jesus' words saying this. So, I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone, everyone... For the little child who asks, for the retiree who asks, for the student, freshman, or senior who asks, or grad student, or someone who's never been to college at all, whoever asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks the door will be opened a bold bodacious promise God makes to you in the midst of it we request some of those things that we ask of God that we request of God are a raised hand as best we can do in the midst of the silence of this important thing in our heart others we have said out loud and we'll say again whichever it is right now I invite you to bow your head with me in this request, Lord God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this space and time and pledge to us that you are here. Know us deeply, Lord God. Hear the things that we can barely even breathe. The challenges that seem too big for us to wrap our mind around, let alone our words. And those things that we have said so often, repeatedly, we bring up every time. Hear all of those requests, Lord God, and bring your power to our lives, to this situation. And in the midst of it, Lord, we worship you. We praise your name. We tell the truth of our lives, of who we are in comparison to who you are. So draw close in your spirit. Amen. And amen. And we dip right on into the book of Nehemiah. Some of you would know that Nehemiah, in the chronologies of the New and Old Testament, Nehemiah is the last bit of what happens in the timeline of the Old Testament, even though it's a little ways back, right? It's deeper in the Old Testament. Ezra and Nehemiah, by the way, uh, scholars believe that it used to be just one book, that Ezra and Nehemiah became a second book book over time in part because of the dominant character of that section but the idea is that very likely Ezra wrote it all so that as we hit this very first sentence of this chapter the words of Nehemiah son of Hekaliah what we are hearing is Ezra saying by the way I'm going to tell you some of what Nehemiah said. Here's what happened, and not in my words. I'm telling you what Nehemiah said. In the month of Kislev in the 20th century, while I was in the citadel of Susa, time out. Uh, how many of you have celebrated the month of Kislev? Have you, have you had a, a rigorous Kislev celebra- celebration? Probably Now, You didn't know it is the thing. Kislev is a portion of our Typically, it moves around a little bit compared to our calendar, but is typically a portion of our late November to December. So yeah, we celebrate it. Certainly we throw down on some Thanksgiving. Uh, We'll end up with some some Christmas celebration or at least pre-celebration in the month of Kislev. So you get the time of year it would be. And in this particular year, the 20th year, Okay, what 20th year? If you cheat just a little bit and kind of look down into the second chapter and first verse, what you see is in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So a central pinnacle figure here in this book of Nehemiah is Artaxerxes the king, the Persian king. So as Ezra is writing the words of Nehemiah, Nehemiah's saying, look, so it's in the 20th year. 20th year of what? The 20th year of his reign. So what we know is, as verse 1 starts this story, it is in the year 446 B.C. This is a section of the oldest storytelling in the Old Testament before we hit this little blank few hundred years before the birth of Christ. 446 BC, so that by the time you hit Nisan, the month of Nisan in the second chapter, first verse, that's four months later. So if you think about the calendar, if it were kind of November, December, and it shifts over into March, April, Nisan, then it would be 445. Yeah, it counts down rather than up. So, give you a couple of uh, little spots on our timeline map. Again, for those of you that haven't been with us, uh, we're trying desperately to kind of account for all these little pieces of the story and figure out how they really factor in. We had talked about the fact that about 605 BC, Babylon attacked Israel in the first of about three waves of attacks, and it's in 586 that Jerusalem is completely destroyed, and in fact, at this point... Remember Jeremiah in chapter 29 says, you're now going to be in captivity for 70 years. And after that time, I have good plans for you, declares the Lord, plans for a future and a hope, not desolation, destruction. And so the rebuilding of the temple marks the end of that 70 years in 516, Then, a little bit later, we have the book of Esther, the stories that happen in the book of Esther. We talked about that two weeks ago. And then finally, what we talked about last week, remember, Ezra leads a second group back to Jerusalem to re-instill and reinforce worship of the true God. All right, then, 445. About 13 years after that, Nehemiah begins the rebuilding of the walls in the second chapter of Nehemiah. But we're focusing on the first chapter of Nehemiah, if you don't mind. So we go back to Nehemiah 1, verse 2, and it says this, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Incidentally, Hanani, his brother, the Hebrew word my brother there, could be his actual brother, or it could be a kinsman from further along in the lineage. We're not clear which one it is. Scholars actually lean toward it being his actual brother because about chapter 7, a little bit later in the book of Nehemiah, he ends up being given by Nehemiah a very pivotal leadership role. And so some think for sure this is his actual brother. In either case, this is his family. This is his kinsman who's coming back. He has a special closer relationship than with others. And as he arrives back, he's got some questions Ken and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. He's, He's asking about how things are going back in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, by the way, over 700 miles away. In fact, they say that to journey there would take about 900 miles of travel and probably approximately four months. Three to four months to go there. This is a place that that, uh, Nehemiah has never actually ever been. Nehemiah wasn't born about 160 years before Babylon attacked Jerusalem and it's been destroyed. But there is something in his heart that observes what he hears, what he reads, what he knows of this Yahweh God and the plan that is laid out, and he sees that things are wildly off the rails, and it bothers him, and he asks the question, how is it going back there? And the report back is disturbing. Of course, there's already the disturbing understanding that they are in exile, most of them. Well, they said to me, Hananiah, and those who came back, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and in disgrace. Some versions lean to a a reading that sounds a little bit more like they are not only in trouble, but they are a disgrace. For if we believe in the power of the Yahweh God, and yet things are so bad, it is a blight on his name, and we we are a reproach to him. So things are desperate and things are difficult. Now, as the story goes, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Incidentally, that would all potentially be well known to Nehemiah already. And what we're going to see in a minute or two is he has this really guttural, visceral reaction to this news. But it's more than just that the Babylonians destroyed the city. In the different waves of individuals, you remember all the way back when Cyrus, the king of the Medes and Persians, ends up giving permission for them to go back. There are about a million Jews that are in, in captivity. And 50,000, a very small group, they're all given permission. You can go home. But only 50,000 decide they want to go home. They go. And they get started, but they get stra- distracted. They get kind of turned aside from their real challenges, and and they're off course a bit, and others will come to help get them back on track. You remember Ezra comes back a little bit later to help them focus on appropriate worship. We had that in our timeline. Well, about 2,000 come back with him. So most of the Jews have stayed in captivity, but there's one other thing that you should know, and that is In Ezra chapter 4, verses 7 through 23, write that down, go check it out. It's embedded between a couple of statements that make the timeline confusing. In the middle of a conversation about Ezra's return, there's this little story about something that happens during the time of Artaxerxes, which is much later. It's during the time we're talking about now, Nehemiah's return. And what happens is the surrounding leaders of countries other than the Jews are worried about the idea that they are building things back up. And as so often happens with God's work, in comes the enemy to, to destroy and to dissuade and to knock down. And so they send a letter to Artaxerxes. And in their letter to Artaxerxes, they say, hey, look, you should, you should go look in history. These people can't be trusted, they're not good people. You let them get a foothold here. You let them grow their way back into health, and the next thing you know, they're not going to be paying you taxes. They're not going to be supporting you. They'll be destroying things, and they will. Oh, it's going to be awful. You don't want to let them rebuild. Go look at the history and the stories. And so Artaxerxes does so and actually in his reading of history decides, yeah, they could be a trouble. They could be a problem. Yeah, you're right. I'm going to send back word, a letter, a decree that says they cannot build, that this should not be happening. And so in the last little bit of that story, Ezra chapter 4, verse 23, we read this. As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force, a military action, Took down all their progress and forced them to stop. And anything, anything that had been going, anything that had been built in terms of some of the city bulwarks and the walls of protection were torn down. And so that when Nehemiah is hearing this from his brother or relative, it's bad. It's not good. And I think right now it'd be a perfect moment for us to just step outside of the story and just ask ourselves a couple of questions. Have you been paying attention to what's going on in your neighborhood, in your families, in your life, in your country, in this world? Have you noticed there's trouble? <laughs> Have you noticed there are problems? Have you seen that there are things going wrong? And I don't know how frustrated you get. I I know we talk about pet peeves, but that almost feels like this pesky little thing over there that we can kind of ignore. How many of you have noticed that the things that bother you, the things that are troubling in this world, they keep coming back with more and more and more intensity? I don't know. Is there anybody here that's significantly worried about the cause of Christ and the family of faith? Disintegration? People who are... Not really true followers mixed in with, yeah, yeah, there's all sorts of things going on. We don't have to look past our own country to worry, do we? Relationships that are stretched and strained, people who are increasingly angry, there are all sorts of sides to be on and to take and to be angry with one another. And in the midst of this, One might wonder if it isn't an apt metaphor looking at Nehemiah's journey here as he is being told the messages and told the news of how things are going. Now we can talk about it, about our country, about our church out there, but you don't have to go that far, do you? Some of us come from marriages that are in real trouble. Others have our children that we're worried about still, yet others have struggles with their own health or maybe their job is insecure or they've been struggling to figure out how they're going to get the housing that they want. Some of us, it might even be something that seems simple to others. Things like, I have no real idea with what I should study in school. I've told people this is what I'm going to do, but I really don't have any clarity that that is what I should do. And I find it upsetting because I'm plowing all sorts of money into preparation for what? I don't even know. Oh, we could go on. Could we not? We could go pew by pew, and uh, think about it. What would happen if when I had said, all right, How many of you have a silent prayer request? We stopped, we focused in on the first one closest to me and said, okay now, why don't you just go ahead and share it? Let's make it not silent. And we all just went around the room sharing the things that we are hesitant to share, that we are struggling with, that we are praying for, that we are unclear about what's gonna happen next. And we put those requests just right out there. Nehemiah, in the fourth verse, reports this. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned not just some days, we know by the calendar that it was about four months that he wept, that he mourned, that he was torn up. You know, I can turn the television on late at night and see just the right commercial and be a little bothered about something, concerned over something, right? But not always do I wake up even remembering that. But that thing that stays with you, that wakes you up at night, that causes you sleeplessness, that you are concerned about, that you keep going to your knees about, this is what Nehemiah is describing. A deep, deep concern. Some of us here are really clear on our calling in life, what God has asked us or invited us to do. I'm going to make a strong suggestion to you that the requests that are most deep, deep, and felt most strongly in your heart are a clue, a hint to a quest God may be taking you on. In fact, I would like to say it this way, that which breaks your heart may indeed reveal God's calling on your life. And I'm not talking about a momentary response, but those things that keep coming up in your heart, those things that you can't let go of, that you're bothered by today and you're bothered by tomorrow and you're bothered by the next day. But fantastically, interestingly, I'm going to suggest to you there is a principle in it, prayer is a part of it, but this conversation with God, we need to be ready to hear back from him. Not just tell him our feelings. It's a two-way conversation as we'll see in the story of Nehemiah. We'll see in the words of Jesus. He says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some uh, some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. So, Nehemiah is, I mean, others around him might have wondered what exactly is even going on with this guy. This seems like he's taking this a little harder than he needs to. We knew about this city being torn down, but maybe he had been more hopeful about progress that had been made. Maybe he's realizing, by the way, you will not find Artaxerxes' name in chapter 1. Nehemiah avoids it. But at the very end, he will give a little hint, just like he did in saying the 20th year. It's a hint yeah, okay, so there's a guy who's a big part of this story, Artaxerxes, and at the very last he'll say, "I, by the way,'m the cupbearer to the king." to Artaxerxes." And that may sound like a kind of a well risky but low-level task, that of being kind of the canary in the coal mine just to see if the king is going to survive his food, but Regularly, the person in this position was given that position in part because the king appreciated spending time with that person. Multiple times a day, they would be very close to one another. More access often to the cupbearer than to any other person in the kingdom, potentially, so that with regularity, it was with the sense of it being almost the second, or maybe indeed the second in command in the country. And so Nehemiah is here with this king. Now, he knows him well. He knows he's a dangerous man, quite honestly. He knows that he has the capacity and sometimes the absolute will to end somebody like that. For whatever reason, a sideways look, the wrong statement, just a sense that you don't know you're subservient enough. So in the midst of this, Nehemiah is able to appreciate that, in fact, part of his sorrow has come at the hands of this king. For he has stopped the progress, and yet if anybody's going to talk to him, who's going to talk to him? But that could be the—I mean—that could be the worst move in the world, and so he is in turmoil because he's so close to the situation and yet so far away. What can he do about this? So, so little, but he goes to his knees. And as he goes to his knees and prays over these four months, he lays down a model that will be repeated by Jesus in Luke chapter 11. We'll go back there to see... And there are two or three things that I want you to notice about it. He begins praying in the fifth verse, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Luke chapter 11 starts very much with this question. By the way, our requests are really questions, aren't they? And, And sometimes we talk about the theology of questioning God. Is it appropriate to question God? I would say the answer is is a pretty easy yes. I would also admit, though, that at times we are asking questions not even so much to hear the answers but to build our case, which is a different thing than what Nehemiah is doing in his requests of God. He's got a question he's laying out there. His his request of God is, "What, what, what can you do? How can you help me? I am in pain here, and this is wrong, and where do we go? But he starts, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. Incidentally, different words, yes, but mirror in some ways the beginning of Jesus' response to the disciples who say, hey, Jesus, teach us how to pray in Luke chapter 11. So Jesus says, all right, I'll teach you how to pray. Pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy, hallowed, and great are you. In almost mirror language here, Nehemiah prays, you, dear God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And by the way, Lord God, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, interestingly, Nehemiah expands that request kind of specifically. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. And in that, you can read and you can understand, he is saying, Lord God, I confess and I repent of the sins that I have personally committed against you. And I confess of the sins that all of my people have committed. There's something I've noticed, by the way, in the recent days, years, we are, on one hand, very happy to embrace the notion all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we are not all that happy about confession. <laughs> We're not, we don't really want to confess our sins. And you want to get really, really bad? Have me confess the sins of my ancestors. Have me confess, have me say, I want to repent on behalf of the Collegedale Church for the last hundred years. Wait, who, what? Now, who told you you could do that? We're a little squirrely about repenting. I repent over the sins of my people. I'm going to suggest to you that our hesitation to be repentant ought be addressed from our inside out. I have a hard time, hard time ever remembering any repentance that I participated in that turned out to be bad for me. Yeah. So that... By the way, in in America here and now, we are very individualistic. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew culture, not so. It's not unusual for Nehemiah to say, I repent over the sins of the people from way before I were born. I wear that. 160 years ago, this city was destroyed and it was actions that happened before that that led to the captivity. I repent of idolatry, Nehemiah would say, even though he does not appear to have worshipped an idol. I wonder if I might need to get over my reticence, my hesitation to repent. I think there are a couple of reasons. There's some, I think we want to come to God with our requests and have something, a little something, even if it's a tiny something in trade for him. So we come with this paltry little thing and it it turns out it is not nothing. We do best to know that when we come in repentance, we come to Jesus with absolutely empty hands. I have nothing to recommend myself to you, God. I am a sinner. You know what? It doesn't matter who did it first. One of the things we do very rapidly, I've noticed, is when there is something that is a problem and wrong, we hurry to try to figure out who did something worse. And we pacify our guilt with the worst behavior of others. But Jesus says, your repentance is met with forgiveness, and forgiveness is like a tank of water. And it's the exact same tank that the person who did the worst thing goes into as you go into. And if you're thinking, I'm going to dip my toe because I only did toe depth worse, Jesus says you have not been bathed in forgiveness. You go all in or you don't go. It's not a a comparison game, but this is one of our actions to try to keep from going empty-handed. See, I'm not as bad as, I've got a little something here. Yes, I realize that men have behaved horribly toward women. But, but I mean, you know, not not, not me, at least not, not a lot, me, not it's just a tiny, tiny little bit. I've got something. And Nehemiah would say, I repent of my behavior and the behavior of all men who ever subjugated a woman in, inappropriately. Huh? You know, my people weren't even in America when slavery happened, right? I'm not sure how it hurts to say the wrongs of the past I will wear all the way into a bath of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Because every moment I spend protecting myself, trying to pile up little anthill of worth of my actions in my hand to bring to God, and I've got dirt in the way of his forgiveness, (laughs) he says, no, no, drop it. Get rid of it. Come empty-handed. I will be the one who will put something in your hands. Your little thing, it's just getting in the way. But our first move... It's to pacify our own behavior over something we see as worse in others and then we will cling to the notion it wasn't me. As if it entitles us somehow to God's goodness to be able to prove it wasn't me. And Nehemiah? I don't know what you do with the model of Nehemiah. I don't know what you do with Daniel? who did the exact same thing. I don't know what you'd do with a Moses who did something so, so similar as to say, I'm gonna just go ahead and say it, I'm as good as having done it. I don't know why you would need to differentiate me from the person who did the most vile thing, for all have sinned and come short, and I've come short, and I just repent, I repent. This problem we have, it is easy for me to point at, whether it's newscasts or stories or the behavior of two people and go, look at them. And Nehemiah drops to his knees and says, Lord God, you see me. And I will not be, I cannot be excused somehow. So I just need your forgiveness. I'm not sure how it would hurt me to simply say, Lord God, I repent of it all. Could it be that the thing God wants to put in your hand requires you letting go, me letting go? Somehow of some of these things Nehemiah takes responsibility for the problem that breaks his heart. Every once in a while I get a phone call or an email about somebody who has experienced a problem. And it may be a very real problem. And they really want me to know about the problem. And sometimes there are things I can do about the problem. Sometimes it's a person who wants me to do something about a problem that I cannot do anything about, and I often wonder if we all took the approach, the problems I observe, I take to Jesus with open hands because when I have a question, when I have a request of him, I need to open my hands because he very, very likely has been disturbing my heart so that he can put a quest in my hands. You know, there is no logical reason why Nehemiah should have seen himself to be the answer to this problem. It's a four-month trek to a place he's never, ever been. It will require millions of dollars to accomplish this work. He has none of that. He'll be killed along the way without protection or when he arrives and starts to try to do this. By the way, his people do not have permission as taken away by the guy he directly works for. Oh, and did we mention it? He has a job he's supposed to show up to. And it's every day. (laughs) Not just five of seven. Oh, and he's never built a wall before. (laughs) Did I also mention... No one else wants to go. There is no reason Nehemiah, as he bows before God, repentant and ready to talk to God about this, should be seeing himself as some form of solution. But as he prays, he begins to do something else quite significant and specific. You could miss it if you don't know what you're reading. He says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, first part has happened. If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. I don't know that Nehemiah is even seeing himself yet as central to this story, but what he is saying, all of this first part that you said has come true, and I am calling you out, God, on your promises. He is repeating back to God the words of God. And when you're distraught and you are wondering, I wonder how our prayers would be different if we would spend a little time in the Psalms, a little time in God's Word, and we go to our knees and we pray through the promises. Because when you pray through the promises, it's not a question of if. It's just a question of when. And on occasion, who. But be suspicious when you pray through the promises because God has worked on your heart and you are crushed over something. When you pray through those promises, be suspicious, he very well, because the less likely you are to be able to succeed, the more likely he wants you. He says it that way. He says, My preference, weak things. My preference, broken stuff. My preference, people who know they can't do it, so that when I do it, everyone knows I did it. You might be perfect. <laughs> Some of us are harder for God to work with because we have talents and we've got experiences and we know how it was done and failed in 1964. So if you feel inadequate for this, buckle up, (laughs) because God has a quest for you, and it probably relates to your requests. Then he does something very significant and interesting. He says, there are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. God's hearing him. He knows God is hearing him. And what he's doing there, he's he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 9 where there's a conversation between Moses and God. And God has said, I tell you what, these people, how about I blot them out and we'll start over. And Nehemiah is there on his knees saying, it feels like this has all been so completely squashed, rebooted, stunted, destroyed. It's going nowhere. But God, remember your words. You promised. And he will quote Moses speaking to God saying, no God, no God, no. These are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. And Nehemiah sees it in some ways equivalent to pleading directly with God for the life of his people as he prays through the promises of Scripture. And then finally, as he closes this chapter, he will say, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This man? What man? Well, we know because we kept reading. We know because of the hint back in the 20th year comment, 20th year of whom? Artaxerxes. Because he's then going to say, which by the way, I am indeed the cupbearer to the king, that this man is the one that I serve every day, the one who has the power to change so many things. And in my life, quite honestly... Lord God, I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know how things can get done. I just know we I need your help. So give your servant success. Grant favor in the presence of this man. 2 weeks, we're going to dig further deeper into this whole interaction with King Artaxerxes But we want to pause right here to just analyze, think through, and cement in our minds that this pattern that Nehemiah follows is not just Nehemiah's pattern. Actually, it's Jesus' pattern. Go with me, if you don't mind, as we come rumbling to a close to Luke chapter 11 and check this out. As we said, it starts in Luke 11 with this question, right? This request, that the disciples have of Jesus. Would you please teach us how to pray? Teach us how to pray, they say. And as, if you turn there to Luke chapter 11, Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer in the fifth verse. He's finished teaching them the exact how to pray, and then he teaches them something else about how to pray in the fifth verse and on. Listen to this. He says, then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend, And you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. Now, if you have gotten confused yet, you're normal. Because we've got multiple friends. We're not sure who's who, how this is even going. So I'd like to just show you, just depict this on a screen here, if you don't mind. First of all, let's say, verse 5, suppose you, or one of you. So there's, right, Blue circle, you. Suppose there's you, and this you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight. Okay, so you have a friend that you're going to. I'm going to tip you off right up front that the neighbor friend, the friend that lives next door to you, who is going to be asleep, who Jesus says you should just keep knocking until they bring you the food for your need in your situation, that's the neighbor God if you follow this story. But there is another friend who has come along at night. You go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because another friend of mine on a journey, that's the traveler, has come to me and I have no food to offer. So here's, here's how it goes. You can read it more carefully. Friend, who's a traveler, shows up and is in need. The city is broken and there's no hope and Nehemiah recognizes it. Our country is at odds, person to person, political party against political party, neighbor against neighbor, and you are bothered. You learn of a family member who's had the... Sentence of cancer spoken over their life, and you don't know what to do, but you're concerned. You have children who you're not certain if they are going to get a job, or they're at school and they're far away from you, and so you have this concern, and you go to the neighbor. This is actually, we use a word for this intercessory prayer. I'm praying to God on behalf of someone or something else. And in the story, the way this goes, because the traveler, for the metaphor, they're hungry, and you don't have the food for them. You don't have the cure for cancer. You don't know how we're going to do anything about, you know, race relationships. You're not sure how you're going to find a job for that person. You're not sure how to, you just know you can pray. And so you go to God. Now in this story, there's an interesting twist in that The description is of a neighbor who does not want to come and help. And the point that Jesus makes is, if you persist, if you keep knocking, if you keep asking, if you keep seeking, sooner or later this neighbor will help. But he's not saying that God is like that neighbor. In fact, he will in a couple of verses say, no, 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 don't think of God that way. In fact, if you as Sinful and evil parents would only give your children good food to eat. How much more the God who loves you? So it's a contrasting relationship in this. But here's the twist, and here's Nehemiah in the midst of it. Because as you know, the friend comes. They have they have a need for food. Come to you. You go to the neighbor. I don't have food. They need food. Can we? I I don't know how to help. You could help. Can you help? And sooner or later, because you insist, they help. Here's what does not happen in the parable. What does not happen in the parable is that then the neighbor leaves their home and goes over to this friend and feeds them. That's not what happens. What happens is you go to God and God gives you the food to feed the friend. So, what's not going on here is this kind of thing that we sometimes feel where I do feel, I feel badly for you and so I go to my knees on your behalf and I say, God, look, this is what they could use. This is, I, I told them I would pray and so I'm praying for them and I, I actually have some sentiment behind it. I would love for you to help lead them into success and sort out their issues and maybe they are grieving over the loss of a loved one and so could you bring them peace, please, Lord? Only you can do that and it would be great if we were there by Tuesday. And I prefer the extra large size. Wait, I've got, I've got Amazon Prime, so I can get it there, by two, right? I can get it there. And I'm looking for God to leave his house and go serve this other person. And Jesus says, ah, there may be any number of ways that this all works, but here's one of them, and that is that I will bring back to you and your empty hands my solution for the world's problems. Nehemiah, you come to me all sorrow-riddled, just know this, as you open your hands, as you confess yourself, you are placing yourself in a perfect spot to be used by me in a way that's miraculous and no one would ever believe. When you ask your question, when you solicit God with your requests, you are opening your hands to his quest, an adventure on his behalf. So that Jesus, when he says it, and I'll invite our team out, I think some of them anyway are gonna come and, pray and play as we exit today. When Jesus says these words, for everyone who asks receives, for he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened, he does so immediately following that parable. In other words, for everyone who would be willing to take what I give them and serve the people around them, whenever you ask for that, I will give it to you. Whenever you seek, to be a healer to the wounds of the world around you, you will find, if you knock on my door like Nehemiah does and you say, Lord God, I am troubled by what's going on in the world around me, he says, I will give you what it takes to serve the needs of the world that breaks your heart. So maybe, maybe my problem is I'm not brokenhearted enough. I'm thinking too much about me. Maybe it is that when I come to God, I come with my hands full because I want to recommend myself to him. I'm not so bad after all. Maybe it is that I believe in a catalog order, Santa Claus, God, instead of the one who has said, if you love me, come. Empty your hands first because this cross is a big one. Come and follow me. Let your heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And not in some cavalier or callous or distant way, but in the kind of way that would push you across 900 miles in four months to get to the town where it's needed that you would arrive even before you know how to build a wall, even before you know how to speak to people who are grieving, even before you understand how to be someone who steps in the gap between people of different races who are struggling, before you know all of that, yield yourself to me. Request of me, he says. And I will give every time. I will give to you if you seek, if you ask, If you knock Lord God we have days that we're looking for a convenient God one that will kind of leave us alone we'll give you an hour, we'll give you sometimes five but boy to rearrange our whole lives like that, that's keep speaking to us Lord keep drawing us Lord help us to go all the way into the waters of forgiveness and your spirit help us to be open-handed in our pleas toward you knowing you so regularly are going to be asking if we would be willing to go on a journey on a trip on a mission on some quest and may we take seriously your promises There is no one in this room that if they pray and ask how Lord could you use me that you will have no reply but that you for everyone who asks they will receive, everyone who seeks they will find, everyone who knocks. We knock today. So may we change some part of this world in your name because of your power. We submit to you in Jesus' name.